What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Aguera. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different complete guy, which is the guy who walked walkways of San Quentin death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... No, no, that's actually funny. That's, and it's funny enough, and I'll tell you why. That's a good one, Matt. No, I'll tell you why. Welcome to Death Row Diaries, the only podcast hosted live from Death Row. I am Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nogueira. And Bill, today we're going to talk about the I-5 killer. And I know you're going to have some thoughts on this because there's a lot of guys named the I-5 killer. But this one really freaks me out. First, we have a listener-submitted question. And this was submitted through our Patreon page. So I would implore all of you listeners to check out that page. That is... That is patreon.com slash Diaries, and you can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Diaries. Deathrow Diaries, it's the name of the show, it's not hard to find. Now this question comes from Eric, and he's based in Kentucky, and he says, Hey Matt, I listened to the Patreon episode about Whitey Bulger, and the one thing that is sticking out to me is how twisted the system really is. Now here's my question. The powerful crime syndicates combined with other highly manipulative criminal minds that have various levels of notoriety and fame and the correctional officers that maybe don't have a lot going on in their lives. Do you ever see, Bill, uh, Bill, do you ever see that the correctional officers try and buddy up with some of these notorious scumbags? That is a long question, but do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, look, these bad guys like Whitey Bulger, Sammy the Bull, they're notorious guys, but they're also very famous. It's like loving a movie star that you know is an asshole, but people still are their fans. Well, in this world of crime and punishment and you know, correctional officers, law enforcement, criminals, it's still the same guy. I think we talked about this before that I know a woman who was she's a psychologist, by the way. She was married to a cop for a number of years. And she divorced him at one point and then she married a criminal. And when I speak to her, she says, it's the same guy. I'm married the same guy twice. Because she's talking about personalities. And how this comes to kind of to this question is that correctional officers, some are these guys, are these macho guys who are in this because, you know, they're totally against criminals in some ways, or some ways they just want a job, but they're tough guys. And they see a criminal who's a tough guy too, has notoriety, and they kind of find a kinship. They kind of think the same. These guys are not so much different than the guys behind the bars. Now, a lot of them say it. They say, if it, if it weren't for this job, I'd probably be behind these bars with you. I've heard that a number of times. Hmm. And it really comes down to that. It's birds of a feather. Criminals and convicts, or convicts 
are a similar personality. So yeah, you see this thing happen. Sometimes these guys buddy up to correctional officers or vice versa, and they get one or the other to flip. It's no different when an FBI guy gets a criminal to flip and tell on somebody or become a CI, a confidential informant. It's the same thing. There comes the convict that flips the cop and turns him into his kind of stooge or whatever to do things for him or give preferential treatment or open a door that he's not supposed to go into to take care of something like, of course, happened with Whitey Bolger. Somebody got to him because someone purposely turned their back and they got to him or somebody leaked information. It's no different. It's the same coin, just different sides. Criminals flipping cops, cops flipping criminals. Yeah. Well, how many of them is it? I mean... I always try and get you to give me a percentage, which I know is, is just like not realistic. It's not how the world works, but because you always see like the female corrections officers are sometimes uh, trying to bone the uh, like some drug dealer type guy who's behind bars. And I'm sure there are just normal guys that go to work and, and, and go home. But how many of these people, I guess, have the, capacity to be problematic. All of them have the capacity. It's like saying how many people have the capacity to kill. You take a child from a mother, she'll kill you. Okay? Or you try to harm a child and a father's there, he's going to kill you. So everybody has, has this potential of capacity. When it comes to women and convicts, it's just unique in attraction. It's a, that's a different beast. They're not looking for the tough guy like other cops are that are butting up to cops or, I mean, the convicts or kid convicts butting up to cops because there's a mutual kind of respect because they're tough guys. When it comes, you bring a woman in the picture, that completely flips the coin on its side. This is a, an attraction no different than one when, you, when a woman walks in a bar and she sees a guy, she's attracted to him. That's a whole different ballgame. But we're talking about, I think what Eric is talking about is these, you know, FBI agents or correctional cops or whatever that are able, are flipped by convicts. It's no different. Convicts are always trying to flip a cop. And cops are always trying to flip a convict or, or a criminal on the streets. Every time that a cop busts somebody, usually that question comes up. You know, hey, what do you know? Maybe we can cut you a break. That question always comes up. So I think it's an ongoing, like, good and evil back and forth thing that constantly happens. How many times it happens? What's the percentage? I have no idea. I'd say maybe, well, in the 70s and 80s, it's probably about maybe 20%, 18 to 20%. Now it's much higher in terms of how many criminals are, are flipped by cops to become CIs because, of course, there is that benefit of getting out right away because you don't want to lose what you have. There aren't that many attractive female prisoners. So, it's a little bit harder to be compromised by the, uh, you know, foot-long fake eyelashes and the and the pencil eyebrows and stuff. Well, I mean, look, if you're talking about guys in, in, in women's prisons that work there, <laughs> look, you understand the guy's perspective of this. And, you know, guys aren't really choosy sometimes. It is what it is, right? Yeah, trades there, hey, why not? That's the way guys think. And anybody that thinks that guys don't think that way, well, I got to, you know, a bag full of magic beans I can sell you too in some swampland in freaking Florida. 
Bill, you're going to get us canceled. I like to say things and then blame it on you. That's that's how I roll. Uh, so, Eric, thank you for the question. We appreciate it. And I know that a lot of uh, you all have, have questions that you submitted. So next week, we're going to do an episode and get to all of these. And they're, they're very fascinating. And we do thank you for the questions, which, again, you can send to the Patreon um to the patreon page to instagram and facebook death or diaries i think you all get it at this point bill let's talk about randall woodfield now i never played football my dad told me well you know you're really fast you can jump but you don't want like these 300 pound guys falling on you you might hurt yourself so i said good enough for me but you played football and randall woodfield was a football player how many football players uh, our psychopaths. <laughs> what, 80% of them? I don't know. But look, yeah, this guy, a whole, this guy's a whole different field. This guy, this guy, Randall Woodfield, who is the I-5 killer or the I-5 bandit, this guy's just a whole different animal. Uh, yeah, prolific football player, uh, all-star, football star in every category, made the NFL, and we're going to talk about him when we come back. Uh, yeah, interesting guy. Yeah, so this guy, man, I had a, a, a certain interpretation of tall, dark, and handsome that was imparted onto me. And I think I wanted to believe it because I'm, I'm very pale and I'm tall, but uh, I'm, not, I'm not dark or handsome. Um, which is dark is a maybe a demeanor, not necessarily a you know, descriptive of, of the physical sense of, of, uh, someone's being, but, uh, this guy is tall, dark, and handsome, and, you know, he's from a, a rich family in Oregon. This guy's a good-looking guy. He's a, he's a great athlete, and there's no reason outside of just something messed up in his genes that leads him to start doing all this stuff, like, immediately. No, you're absolutely right. And, and by the way, so the audience knows, look, I sound this way sometimes very intense, not because I've had 15 cups of coffee, but I'm talking from a prison phone, and the receiver isn't always that great, so I had to talk kind of loud and clear, or at least try because I ramble sometimes. So don't hold it against me. I'm not bouncing off a pin or anything. It's sometimes I get a little hyped up about these guys that we're talking about because it's interesting to me. And this guy right here, sets off all kinds of red flags to me. This guy right here is another perfect example of a guy who just really backs up my thesis and my whole theory that serial killers are born this way, they're not created. And Matt, I know you can agree with me on this, but you said it. This guy is from an upper-middle-class family. His father is an executive of Pacific Northwest. His siblings are both doctors and lawyers. This guy did not grow up in a house full he didn't grow up in a house full of trauma and sexual abuse and all this stuff that people go through that all these so called professionals and experts in serial killers always point to. And that's you know, completely off kilter with this guy. Well, you, this yeah, guy, you say this every week and every week I usually try and at least, you know, Submit the fact, like, all right, this guy's, you know, mom was a prostitute and his dad was an alcoholic. I try and throw that in there to at least explain it. And every week you say it doesn't matter. And just like you were just saying, I mean, this is a good example of 
of your thesis being right, you say it every week that they're born this way. Yeah, and look at this guy. Look, look, we can sit here and say there's no record of him being abused. It's possible it could have happened, sure. I mean, he could have been torturing animals in the Oregon freaking forest and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And there are symptoms there. We don't really know what they are. But look, this guy, he begins his career as a football player. This guy with no... Look, we can't even miss words here. He's a stud. This guy is a bad man in terms of football player. Schools love him. He is a star wide receiver. He's not just a little guy. He's 6'1", 185 pounds in the 60s. He's a big guy. He's fast. He's athletic. He's good looking. He's charming. He's a smooth talker. He fits the profile of dark, tall, dark, and handsome look. And he fits it perfectly. But even as with all this stuff is going on, everything's good for him. Girls love him. Coaches adore him. Other players admire him. Look what he's doing. By the age of 16, he's already exhibiting all these dysfunctional behavior, specifically by exposing himself. He has this compulsion. This isn't something that you know, he does once and he does it constantly. This first situation happened when he exposed himself to a group of girls. And he's arrested for it. And it's looked upon really funny, but here comes, and we've talked about this again, here come the coaches. Oh, he's a nice guy. Look, he had a bad day. He had a few drinks. This will never happen again. His coaches covered it up. They got the arrest basically expunged. And he goes on. He ends up leaving high school as a football star. He ends up going to Treasure Valley Community College in Ontario, Oregon. And then he transfers to Portland State, where he becomes a huge football star. As a wide receiver, this guy is everything a coach wants, everything a team wants. He's fast, he's athletic, he catches really well, he's a tough guy, he's in the gym, he's soft-spoken, he listens to his coaches, and he doesn't seem to be a problem for anyone until he becomes a problem at. I mean, look... It doesn't happen just once. This guy, he's arrested half a dozen times for the same stuff. First, he vandalizes an ex-girlfriend's apartment. Then he's arrested for indecent uh, exposure in 1972. Then again, he's arrested in 1973. At the end of his career, he just leaves college. Three semesters before, he gets his bachelor's degree. And... Guess what he does then? He declares for the NFL draft. He is so prolific of a receiver that the freaking Green Bay Packers draft him. I mean, talk about a guy who's gifted. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of unclear on this. So he, he's playing college football, and he's really good. Like, he's probably the best receiver on his college team, I think, is a... I, I don't really know how football worked at this point. This is, yeah, it's relevant. I don't know if he's black or not. And he's six. No, he's white. Okay. All right. Good Good to know. You know, he's six foot tall. I don't know if that was a, a little bit short for a receiver at that point. But I guess the fact is, if this guy was not a weirdo, it seems pretty likely he would have had a, a decent NFL career. Absolutely. 
185 pounds. That is a big receiver from the early 1970s. Now, yeah, sure, nowadays you have receivers of 6'4", 6'5", 6'6". Today, today's game, we're talking about the 1970s, early 70s. This guy is a stud. 6'1", white guy, fast. We're talking low force, meaning 425, 435 in the 40-yard dash. This guy is blazing fast, and he's a hitter. He's a great blocker. When you catch the ball in front of him, he will put you on the ground. This guy is a coach's dream. He is drafted by the Green Bay Packers. So much how good he is that he is given a contract. But it's, it's not his skill as a football player that sets him apart. It's the issues that he has while he's there. As soon as he signs a contract and he's drafted, this guy's arrested for a number of indecent exposures. This guy's taking off his pants and showing himself to women. He's like the mad flasher. He's always pulling down his pants. That is a sickness. This isn't a guy who it's just a joke, it's a gag. No, this guy has a compulsion. And remember how we talk about these serial killers are rapists. They begin as a peeping tom. They begin to light fires and torture animals. This guy, his whole thing is to see how women are responding to him. Because he's so good looking. He's so attractive. He wants to, it, it's almost like a feeling out, purpose, uh, uh, feeling out period. Just like when they light fires, they torture animals. His thing is he's exposing himself. And he's mixing the thrill of exposing himself, which is sexual deviancy, with the thrill of doing it to people he doesn't know. Do you kind of understand what I'm talking about? I do. And one of my first questions that popped up, and I want you to talk about this because, okay, obviously being like a flasher, that's hugely problematic. I think we can all agree with that. I feel like there's a version of this story where it gets ignored. But my thinking is this guy must have been outwardly very creepy because the team doesn't even defend him. Like the, the, the you know, coaches and managers are like, uh, I'm getting a bad feeling here. Um, but you must have, when you were playing football, you know, you must have been surrounded by some guys that were kind of creepy. But I'm just thinking that everyone was picking up on this. Everyone knew that this guy's, uh, this guy's bad news. It becomes a problem because you're a professional football team in the NFL, and this guy doesn't do it once or twice. He gets cut a dozen times <laughs> doing this stuff. You know, they, at first, they probably said, look, this will probably come here. Hey, look, man, what's up with this shit? you got to knock this stuff off. But he is so good that they, they, they ignored it for a while. In high school and college, he was doing it. They ignored it. They expunged his record because he's that good. But at some point, he becomes a liability. And yeah, look, I've been in, I don't know how many locker rooms, I've been in, in fighting teams for the Hapkido uh, uh, organization. Yeah, look, when you're dealing with guys at that level of testosterone, of course you're going to find guys who are a little off. It doesn't mean that they may become serial killers or serial rapists or bad guys. Sometimes it's just youth, adolescents acting out. This guy's a whole different animal. You don't expose yourself a dozen times to different women, and it's not a compulsion. This guy, what he's doing is he's trying to feel his way through the dark. He knows he likes to do it, but, he, but as he's doing it, 
doing is he needs to escalate. This is a this is a guy who's a rare type of killer because he's not he set up to start to be a killer because he's not torturing animals. It starts off with the sexual compulsion. And from there the thrill begins to diminish. So he has to up the ante. And then we'll see it in his career how he begins to escalate extremely quickly because he's looking for that thrill. His psychological deal that releases all the dopamine into his brain and the L dopamine is that thrill of excitement when he's doing it. This guy is a whole different animal. He's also mixes organized, he's an organized killer, he's also a disorganized killer, which kills on opportunity. This guy's completely different and that he is able to um, perform at such a high level physically, which is also a mental uh, toughness, because you can't make the NFL, you can't push yourself to those levels when you're doing all this crazy stuff. This guy's extremely strong mentally to focus the way he does. So I've heard a few people recently, and we're going to get into his crimes right now, but it seems obvious to me kind of from talking to you. And I, I think I already held this belief before I knew you, if you're exposing yourself to women, that's not harmless. That's like, that's not all you're doing. If you're doing that, right. You're, you're like a killer at some level. Well, you, you're, you know, guys like Pete Toms and guys that expose themselves. Yeah. They, they begin to, I guess it depends on the individual as well. They begin to graduate. They begin to, to do it more and more. Look, this guy, after the Green Bay Packers, he played semi-pro ball uh, for the Chiefs and uh, it's, um, uh, for the Manitowoc, or Manitowoc Chiefs. This guy has always been good at what he does. It's just that this problem about exposure, exposing himself, and the criminal element behind it is really something that he mixes very well, too. And we'll talk about his crimes right now, but look, when he leaves the NFL and, look, he comes back as a disgrace, basically, because you didn't make it. I mean, that's where it comes from. The NFL means not for long if you're not good enough. He was good enough physically. His skill level was up there. The problem was all the baggage he brought with him. So he gets back, and look what he does. It's, it's, it's incredible how fast this guy starts. And once he starts, it is an acceleration that is mind-boggling because it's like they, it's like he took off running from the forty yard dash or the forty meter dash. Once he started, it just exploded out of the blocks. Let me call back and we'll get into this guy's case. Yeah, so mind boggling is the word you used, and I think it's appropriate because this guy I don't even know how many times he's arrested. I'm sure you know. Like I lost track three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine times. How many times do you have to pull your dong out? I don't want to do it. I feel like I could do it all day and not get arrested. Like, how egregious is this guy's behavior? It's it's mind-boggling. Yeah, no, absolutely. But listen, look, he, he leaves the, the, the Chiefs. The contract is, is to rescind us the Green Bay Packers. So he has to make money. This, this guy has been working. Again, for me, looking at this guy, for him it's the thrill. He mixes taking with sex. He takes he mixes control with sex. 
and, and then that doesn't become enough. So here's what he does. In 1975, he begins to rob convenience stores. And in one instance, he robs a woman, and he forces her to perform oral sex on him. That's a new thing for him. That's a new twist, and he likes it. In the same year, 1975, he begins to rob him more. He's always wearing a beard. He wears nose pink like he's a football player, which is really weird. But he does it so prolifically that they put a bunch of women cops, undercover cops, that are, have marked bills, hoping that this guy is going to continue doing this. So he finally robs an undercover cop. And they arrest him because he has the marked bills on him. They arrest him, they bring him into the station, and he immediately confesses. And he says that it was poor sexual control due to his use of steroids. He pleads guilty, and they give him 10 years, of which he does only four years, and he gets out in 1979. See, man, what I can really, I guess, wade into when it comes to this, when you're in prison, you have a lot of time to think. Those who are trying to rehabilitate themselves, and they understand, look, I did something wrong. This is my opportunity to make amends, to get my mind straight, to educate myself, to understand why I act the same way, get help, and then when they get out, they leave a productive life. This guy does the opposite. He goes to prison, and instead of getting help programs to try and get out, what he does is, he begins to think about what it was he did and how he, and he tried, and he thinks about how to get his rocks off, how to escalate this thing because he feels that there's a level of sexual excitement of that thrill that he can get, that he hasn't crossed that threshold yet. He knows what he is. And he knows who he is. He hasn't told anybody. He hasn't acted on it yet. But he already knows what he is, and that is calling him. As I said before, there's a tip to these guys, serial killers, serial rapists. There's a particular behavioral tip that they can't help but do, and that's what he does. Are you so sure? Are, are you sure about this, Bill? I, I believe you, but I'm. Absolutely. To me, it's hard to rationalize someone doing some self-reflecting and coming to the conclusion, yeah, I have to rape and kill more people. <laughs> Like, that's hard for me to process. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Absolutely. And look, I'll give you a perfect example. Lawrence Bittaker and his partner, his partner, they were in men's colony of prison in California for a number of years. They were already weirdos. And when they get together there, what do they, what do they think about? How to rape, kidnap, and murder Girls ages 12 through 18, so 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. That's their plan. They're going to get a van called the Murder Mac. This is what they're going to do. Right. The murder machine. So this is what guys do in prison who are not willing to rehabilitate and change their lifestyle. But I don't think he can change it because this guy is wired this way from birth. So he gets out and... Right away. Look, look. Okay, so he's in jail for four years. He gets out. You think, hell, look, I'm going to change my life. This is not what I want to do. Au contraire, mon frere. As soon as he gets out, he goes to the house of Cheryl Arias. Arias. And she's an x-ray technician. She's 
he's also a former classmate of this clown, okay? He goes in there, he rapes and murders her in her apartment. Why does he do this, Matt? Because he's been thinking about it. Why do I know that he's been thinking about it? Here's my proof. The four years that he was in prison, ask me who he was corresponding with. Oh, I have no idea. He was he was corresponding with Cheryl or Sherry Ayers. That's who he was writing while he was there for four years in prison. They were writing letters back and forth. So he gets out, he goes to her house, he rapes and murders her. So how is it that no one can see what I'm seeing here? He had planned it the whole time. He had been thinking about this the whole time he was in prison. As those letters arrived, every letter that he opened, every time he saw her perfume, this guy's thinking about what he's going to do to her, how he's going to get her, what he's going to do. This is what happens. This guy, I, I think of these guys as being kind of sexually frustrated because they are alienated. And here we have this guy that, you know, un, under eliminating a, a variable, he's he shouldn't be alienated because he's a good-looking guy. He's good at sports, and um, and yet he's he's still doing this. So I mean, I mean, there there must be a correlation though. Like a lot of times, aren't these guys like the ghoulish? You know, the fat guy with the tiny head type of guy, the Hannibal Lecter type of guy, or um, does it does it not matter? I'm just rambling. This is weirding me out because I, I feel like I, if I looked at this guy, he'd be like a friend of mine. Yeah, no, look, the truth of the matter is we've been programmed to think that way. We've been conditioned to think that if the guy's a rapist, he must be a creepy guy, ugly guy, short guy, fat guy, whatever. The guy, kind of guy that can't talk to women, he stutters, he smells bad. That is all what movies have taught most people, and most people believe this crap. I'm here to tell you it's absolutely true. This guy is my, this guy is my exhibit A, if you will, please. This guy is not just, like I said, a good-looking guy. He's extremely good-looking. He's extremely smooth. Girls love this guy. But it isn't about that. Just like violence is not about love, it's about violence. Rape is about, I'm sorry, rape is about violence, not about anything else. But this guy, he can't get his jollies unless he's doing it in the middle of this whole, you know, mental, psychological thing of flashing, taking it, robbing. It's an entire thrill thing. You have to have this stuff. And you kind of see it. So, okay, let me explain something to you and to the audience. We mostly see these guys torture animals, light fires, because they're looking for that thrill, and then usually they jump from that to murdering people. With this guy, we don't see that, but we actually do. And here's where it is. His football career was him lighting fires. His football touchdowns was him torturing animals. He was getting used to that adrenaline, the L-dopa, the L-dopamine going into his brain and giving him that thrill. When he couldn't get that thrill from that, he escalated. And this is the jump from hitting somebody on a football field to hitting somebody and raping them. I know it seems like a, a large chasm. It really isn't when you're talking about chemicals in a guy's brain. So listen to this. So he kills his first woman there. And then on Thanksgiving Day, which we're only two days away from, he plans to rape Darcy Fix. And she is the girlfriend of one of his college friends. 
Unfortunately for them, he gets to the house. That's cool. And his friend Douglas, who is her boyfriend, is actually there. You would think he'd turn away. No. It escalates his thrill factor. He actually bounds them both. He shoots them both execution style and kills them. And then he turns right around and he goes on a on a robbery spree through Washington. He hits gas stations at gunpoint, ice cream parlors. The next night he goes to a drive-in restaurant. He wears beards, nasal strips, these disguises. He then on December 21st traps a waitress in a bathroom and she forces him at by knife point to masturbate him. Again, in the bathroom, somebody can walk in, the thrill of getting caught. All these things are going through his brain. He's really just hit every marker that he can to get the thrill going again. It's already escalated to me. Like, I'm, I'm like, all right, well, this can't go any further. <laughs> like, definitely he's out of control. But not everyone that's even that out of control starts doing what, what this guy's doing. Yeah, well, he's seeking that particular rush. And it, it just continues. The next month, the cops are already dubbing him the I-5 bandits because he's committing these crimes along the Interstate 5 corridor. That's that's why they're calling him this. Um, and it just it escalates. There's no other way to call it what it is but escalation. So on January the 8th, he holds up another gas station. And as the woman is pulling money out of the cash register, at gunpoint, he tells her she has to expose her breast to him. Why he does that? He's looking for money. He's looking for the thrill. A couple days later, he robs a market in Eugene. But this time, he shoots the woman in the head. On January the 14th, wearing a false beard, he enters a home where there's an 8 and a 10-year-old little child. And Matt, he goes from a guy who likes women to now a pedophile. He rapes and sexually assaults both of the children, which is normally something that people don't really relate to a person with an M.O. Because most of them like women, you know, they may like women with red shoes, but it's a woman. Or, or it's a man, or whatever they're, they're, they're really they're... They're a victim of choice. But this guy becomes a victim of opportunity. Here you have two children, eight and ten years old, and he sexually assaults them both, which is crazy. But it kind of proves my point that this guy, he's just doing it as it comes along. He's looking for that rush. And this is how he gets it. Look, four days later, he enters a building. He sexually assaults Sherry Hall and Beth Wilmot. And he kills Hall, and he leaves Wilmot for dead. He shoots a bullet, but he thinks one's dead. And then he goes on a spree between January 26th and January 29th of committing robberies in Eugene, Medford, Granite's Path. He sexually assaults women during the way, too. Hey, man. Yeah, so the kid thing I wasn't aware of, you know, I can intellectually understand if you're like a creepy pervert and... So I think if you're a pedophile, you're a pedophile. You're not into attractive adult women and children, usually, or ever. And 
so I, it's not like I um, empathize or anything, but I, I can understand why this guy is like a pervert towards women. But the children thing now is, is throwing me off again. Yeah, well, this guy is about the thrill. And he is a sexual deviant. So he has, but he has no boundaries. All sexual deviants have types of what they want to do or what attracts them. This guy basically can try sexual. He'll try anything. And he does it. I mean, look, on February the 3rd, this is, this is, these are hours apart. These aren't days or months or weeks. There is no cooling off period with this guy. Most serial killers are cooling off periods. Not with this guy. This guy, on a couple days later, he hits the home of Donna Eckert and her daughter, her 14-year-old daughter, and they are both found in bed in Mount Gate, California. They are shot several times in the head, and the young girl, 14 years old, is raped. Not the mother. The same day in Redding, California, a female store clerk is kidnapped and raped. Look, this is happening the same day. This is in the month of March. This guy reminds me a lot of Richard Ramirez, where he's in two different places at one day, sexually assaulting different women in one night. It's that thrill factor. He is really escalating. And he continues. Look, the same day, he goes to Rika Identical Crimes. A few hours after that, the same man robs an Ashland, Oregon motel. And then he stops. It's about five days, and it's Valentine's Day. Look what this clown does. He plans a party at the Marriott Hotel, and he invites all his friends, his college friends, and the Green Bay Packers, people that he met. And he's waiting for him at the motel. He's got a big party. He's been robbing all these places. So he does have this. There is a, a method to his madness. And now you see what it is. He's robbing because he wants to have this big celebration bash. And Matt, nobody freaking shows up. He invites all these people and nobody shows up to his party because they got a pretty good feel what this guy's about. You know, he did four years in prison for those rapes and those robberies. And he contacts these people and no one shows up. How does he respond? Tim, that is the ultimate, uh, I guess, just, what do you call it? Just, someone just refuses to be around you. It's neglect. It's, um, what do you call it, man? When someone just... Um, Rejection. Yeah, there you go. Rejection. That's the word I'm looking for. This is the ultimate rejection for him. So what does he do? He drives down to Julia Ritz's house. She's 18 years old. He met her while he worked as a bouncer at the Fawcett in Portland. It's a popular place. Women think this guy is, wow, what a good-looking guy. So he goes to her house. She lets him in. How do we know she let him in? How does she know she welcomed him in? They found wine glasses there. They found the door wasn't Jimmy open. She was making coffee for him. But what does he do to her? Well, he rapes her and shoots her in the head and kills her. That's how he responds to rejection for his Valentine's Day party. And um, by now, it's pretty obvious the police have assembled a log about this guy. They, they have a pretty good problem. So police are onto this guy. They know he exists. They're looking for him. They call him the I-5 killer. And he is making phone calls very close to the crime scene around the same time with calling cards. And he's using pay phones. This really gets 
law enforcement to bring it closer. They, they, they know who it is. He's brought into the San Police Department, and that's where a woman by the name of Lisa Garcia picks him out of a lineup. They get warrants for his apartment, and they find evidence linking him to the crime, including athletic tape, which was used to bound people. They found a beard like he used. They found tape, nose tape. They found uh, a number of different evidence. Remember, we're, we're in a time where there was no DNA evidence. They could not match DNA to him. So the audience is asking, why didn't just match DNA? In the 80s, there was no DNA evidence. And this is several decades away. But as time goes on, more and more victims begin to identify him as the robber. So he is actually charged at one point with robbery, sodomy, rape, murder, kidnap. And he goes through a trial. He has never admitted to any of this, by the way, Matt. He's always said he's been innocent. So they actually find him guilty of murder. Um, they find him guilty of rapes. But they only charge him with one murder. They give him life plus 90 more years in prison. And the only reason they don't do this is because the state of Oregon doesn't have the funds. They can't afford to try this guy for all these murders, although they know he is the I-5 killer. All right, I got two questions. He had a fake beard? Did I hear that correctly? Because he seems like he has a real beard. Correct. That's beside the point. Um, how delusional is this guy? Uh, if you went to jail for four years for rape, essentially, I'm not showing up to your party, even if I got nothing else going on. Why would he uh, think that that was a possibility? Yeah, it's hard to tell what he was thinking, but obviously he was working as a bouncer at a place. An 18-year-old, good-looking young woman invites him into her home. She she invites him, and she's so, uh, you know, I guess attracted or maybe just so comfortable with him that she offers him glasses of wine. Mm-hmm. You know, look, you, you know, how many times have you and I talked about this, man, that if, that if Brad Pitt walks up to any woman in the world and says, God, man, you make me feel like a million bucks. You have a body that'll make a grown man cry. She'll giggle and say, oh my God, that's so cute. But if you have a guy that looks like freaking Herman Munster tell a woman, you're really beautiful, they're going to file rape charges on this guy. So it has to do what this guy looks like. That's what it comes down to. If it's Harvey Weinstein, of course, they fall charges on him. If it's Brad Pitt or George Clooney, oh my God, he's so cute. Yeah, as I was saying, it's just, this guy really is about, he gets weighed a lot because of how he looks, how he acts. And remember, he's a, he's got, he's a stud. And he's well-built. He has everything that a woman probably likes. And he's very convincing. So he goes off to prison. And get this, while he's in prison, he files a freaking lawsuit against Anne Rule, who is an author. She wrote a book called The I-5 Killer. He sued her for $12 million, but um, the, the federal judge dismissed the, the case. He filed it under 1983, the federal code for that, and the judge said, no, they it. So here's what things get really weird, because this case does not end when he goes to prison, because by 1990, 
when DNA began to be linked and became developed, suddenly he is linked to several other murders. Which is crazy because look at the spree. We talked about some of this spree he went on. But obviously, we were wrong. There are many more women that he killed and raped that no one knew about. So much so that in 2006, he's even tied to more murders. And he is suspected and linked to 44 rapes and murders between California, Washington, and Oregon. And it just proves that as fast as he was going, and you were even astonished at how many sprees he went on and how he didn't shut down, no cooling off periods. But we were wrong. It's not even a tip of, tip of the iceberg. This guy was way more prolific than we thought he was. It was astonishing on how many women he raped and killed. And it didn't stop anybody from liking him. Man, guess how many times he's been married while he's in prison. Yep, I don't make this stuff up, Matt. I'm just providing the information. Take a guess how many women he has married in prison, and they were good-looking. Oh, my God. I'm going to guess two. No, three. He's married three different times in prison. And today, I think he's 70-some years old, he's still married. I'm not a dumbass. I can't wrap my head around it. Is he trying to get caught when he's doing all this serial stuff he's, he's not really hiding it very well is he trying to get caught is, or i guess that's not the right way to phrase it does the prospect of getting caught occur to him at all or is is he just living in the moment again and again and again well he's living yeah he's living in the moment he's like a guy who drinks alcohol and gets his car drive he knows he's gonna get caught at some point he knows he made danger to his life but to call the alcohol too much. With this guy's being very similar to that, he knows that he's going to get caught at some point. He has to, but his brain overrides that you know, possibility with the thrill of what he's getting at time. And remember, he is not aware of DNA. No one knows about DNA in the 70s and 80s. So he figured, hey, I can rape and pillage and do what I want to do. No one's going to find me because they can't match me. He doesn't know about the technology is coming in the next 20 years. Let me call back. Hey. All right. So I, I think I've sidetracked you or us a little bit. Um, how is this guy eventually brought to justice of some sort? Well, I mean, he's, he's brought in because of all the things that happened. You know, all these murders that have happened, they've called them into question because he knew the people. But they didn't have a lot of physical evidence at that time to arrest him. But when he's brought in towards the end of 1981, one of the women, uh, uh, Miss Garcia, identifies him as he's the guy who assaulted her. So they immediately put him in cuffs. They, obviously, as I mentioned before, um, get a search warrant. They go to his apartment and they find evidence linking him to all these crimes that uh, the athletic tape beard, other physical evidence, and then as time is going on and they're investigating as he's in jail, a lot of victims identify him or pick him out of a, uh, a lineup, identifying him as the uh, assaulter, raper, you know, robber, and that's how they get him. They're like the victim of one murder, but a bunch of sodomies, rapes, and everything, and they get life plus 90 years, 
and the state of, of, of Oregon does not prosecute him on all the other serial murders because they think he's never going to get out, and they really can't afford him to put him through a trial. Um, but he is, at the end of the career, at the end of 2006, they linked him by physical evidence and DNA to 18 murders. 18. And they have evidence linking him to 44. Oh. So, you have a guy who basically killed nearly 50 people in less than a two-year span. He got out of prison in 1979, and by 1981, he's caught. But, remember... Those 44 murders happened in about a 16-month span. That's probably one of the most prolific uh, sprees of murder that's ever existed in U.S. history. And, and maybe this has occurred to you and, and to the listeners, because maybe it's really obvious, but you know, if you kill an unsuspecting person and you think about all their friends and all their family and how it affects them, and how these people can almost really turn a society, you know, because that's, that's, I, I can't even imagine having a friend that was murdered, let alone for, for a thrill and like how that would affect me. And then you multiply that by a factor of 40, just so much damage that this can do, you know? Well, that's part of the, makeup of who he is. He's a sociopath. He doesn't feel empathy. He doesn't feel uh, anything for the victims, their families, friends, loved ones. And, and look, and I'm turning this a little bit to a different subject, but that's part of what real rehabilitation is about. If you commit a crime sometime in your life and you, you, know, you feel remorse, you feel that you've done wrong, and you, you understand the... Uh, the impact it's had on family, friends, and loved ones of the victim, then you, you're rehabilitated. You understand the damage you've done. If you've done it 40 times, I don't think there's anything anyone can do that is going to convince me that they are rehabilitated or can they be rehabilitated because this guy cannot. I've said it before. I know a lot of people don't like what I say this, but there is no rehabilitation to serial killers, serial rapists, because they have been kicked. They're born to do this. They're not going to stop no matter what you do. You can castrate them, and the brain will take over, and they will continue to do what they do because it's a mental thing. It's something they have to do. So with this guy, yeah, you're right. The damage that he did to people's lives is irreversible, and it is forever. It's, it's just so big. Yeah, he's still alive. I don't think he's going to get out of prison, luckily. Um, yeah, what a, what a dick. <laughs> also, putting uh, tape on your nose, like how like football players, I feel like they did that mostly in the 80s. That That's pointless. That doesn't do anything, does it? Like on the bridge yeah, of your I nose, think horizontally? Think I, yeah, I, I can't even think of why he did that. Maybe he's trying to relive a, a piece of the anger I think I think he was that. psyching himself up to do it like like before a game like you know you, you get excited you gotta oh we're gonna you know we're gonna dominate we're gonna beat this team I think he was doing that like I think he was yeah, doing that like I'm gonna commit this murder or yeah or that too yeah oh yeah 
a gag. He thought it was the funniest thing in the world. It's hard for me to sit here and tell I know exactly what they're thinking at all times. I can look at their actions as a whole and kind of explain why they do what they do because of my experience with serial killers. And I've, I've spoken to serial killers for so many years, many decades, and they, they explain some of their, their particular nuances, their particular kicks or whatever. This guy is a completely different insect. I mean, if I was an insect collector, I'd want it on my collection. And now he's become a collection of death row diaries because he's covered up. Yeah, well, it's been interesting as always. Um, just pivoting a little bit, what's on the. Let's see, this is going to come out, um, I guess, maybe on Wednesday of this week. So, what's on the menu um, for your Thanksgiving day? I'm excited about it. I'm excited on your behalf. And uh, I hope all the listeners, I hope you all have a, a really good Thanksgiving. Um, although most of our listeners are European. They don't know what the hell Thanksgiving is. But anyway, you know, watch soccer or something. I don't know. Anyway, Bill, I I thank you for your time. I always appreciate it. And until then, I've been there also. Thank <laughs> you.